Good evening. I'm Angela Cocott, sitting in for Alex Pearson. You're listening to On Point. As Canada addresses climate change with a goal of net zero emissions by 2050, the big question, how will we get there and what will our energy options be? This week, the House of Commons Natural Resources Committee has been looking at the topic of creating a fair and equitable Canadian energy transformation. One of the guests yesterday to address the committee was my guest this evening, Dr. Christopher Kiefer, President of Canadians for Nuclear Energy. Dr. Kiefer, thanks so much for joining us tonight. It's just a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. Uh, tell me, for people who aren't familiar with your group, what is uh, Canadians for Nuclear Energy? Yeah, so we're a nonprofit. We're made up of uh, actually a surprising number of uh, physicians, doctors, scientists, engineers, um, environmentalists, and tradespeople. Um, and we believe that nuclear energy is really the cornerstone of, uh, of Canada's climate response and relevant to this hearing yesterday, um, essential for Canada's just transition, for a just transition for Canada's fossil fuel workers into um, an even better line of work um, that preserves their dignity, their wages, um, and their ability to get along in the world. When we talk about nuclear energy, especially in Ontario, give me an idea of maybe the percentage of nuclear energy that is in Canada, because some people across the country may not be aware of the significance when it comes to how many nuclear energy plants we have. Yeah, so Canada is an interesting country in terms of our electricity. Um, we have a lot of hydro, you know, and there's provinces like Quebec and and, uh, and BC and Manitoba, um, and they have grids that are almost zero emissions because they get more than 90% of their electricity from hydro. Um, the rest of the provinces aren't, aren't blessed in that way. And Ontario has a bit of hydro. We have Niagara Falls, obviously, but we're a huge province with huge demand. Um, and so, you know, we, we did build coal for a while, um, but we made a really interesting choice uh, in the 70s, 80s and 90s to go big on nuclear. Um, and we weren't thinking about climate at that time. Um, it was just an exciting new technology. We had this great Kandu reactor design. Um, and we we built um, a total of uh, 16 reactors right right here in uh, in Ontario. And that's that's gifted us really with um, a world class um, low carbon grid and also with the ability to phase out coal. So, you know, I, I started my medical career um, in the uh, around 2010. Um, and I did my medical training before that, obviously. And there was a you know terrible problems with air pollution in this province. Um, you know, we had the world's largest, or sorry, North America's largest coal plant in Nanticoke that was just spewing ash um, and sulfur dioxides and things, getting blown on the jet stream over to Toronto. Uh, we had 54 smog days a year um, at the beginning of, of our coal phase. And we were able to use nuclear energy for 90% of the of the energy in order to accomplish that. Um, and that, you know, according to the Ontario Medical Association, has saved about a thousand lives per year and avoided tens of thousands of hospitalizations. Um, so, you know, people often ask me as a physician, why have you become passionate about this issue? What, what, are, what are you doing here? Um, and there's a real logical um, progression to, to why I've come to be a passionate advocate um, for, for this technology, as unlikely as that might seem. Well, there are other alternatives when we talk about wind, solar geothermal. I mean, there is a, a long list. How is it that nuclear, in your eyes, is, is better than those options? Well, you know, we don't just need to replace fossil fuels. We need to replace fossil fuel services. And fossil fuels really underpin um, our civilization. Um, you know, they make our fertilizers, our, our steel, our cement. Um, but just from the electricity side of things, they provide round-the-clock reliable energy that we can dial up and down based upon our needs. And those needs aren't trivial, right? In a summer heat wave, um, our senior citizens need to be able to stay cool inside, um, or they end up in my hospital critically ill, right? Um, 
And unfortunately, wind and solar are intermittent sources. They're dependent on the weather in a world of ever increasingly chaotic weather because of climate change. Um, they, they become radically unreliable. In Ontario, we, we did make a huge investment through the Green Energy Act on wind and solar. Um, we spent upwards of $37 billion so far on it, and it's added very, very little in terms of reducing carbon emissions. And a big part of that, especially with wind, is that it produces completely out of phase with demand. If you think of yourself on a hot, muggy, um, you know, July day, you just wish there was a breeze that would blow some sweat off your brow, right? But wind is almost absent for, for those kind of heat waves. Um, so it doesn't match well the supply. And more concerningly, you know, with what's going on in, in, with Russia and Ukraine right now, we have an example of a country that's gone all in on wind and solar, and that's Germany. They've spent 550 billion euros on a largely wind and solar dominant energy transition. And, you know, again, the wind doesn't always blow, the sun doesn't always shine. Coal was actually their number one source of electricity on their grid in 2021. Um, and they're hooked to Russian gas. And it's, it's, a, it's a tragedy. It's a real shame um, for the Germans, for the Europeans in general, um, that they're financing Putin's aggression in Ukraine to the tune of something like 700 million euros per day um, for the natural gas that they need um, to back up that infrastructure. So we, we, you know, the Germans, they're talking about phasing out coal in 2038. We did it. We did it, um, you know, between 2005 and 2014, uh, you know, nine years. And we did it with nuclear and it's gone. It was permanent. Um, so we have something to be very proud of as Canadians. And, you know, yesterday I was talking about the just transition. Um, and I'm, I'm happy to, to, to talk about, you know, the ways in which the different technologies can offer or cannot offer that to Canadian working people. And I want you to talk about that because the just transition, we know in Alberta, a lot of energy workers are saying, all right, what's this mean? I, I've been an oil field worker. I've been making good money and I'm going to transition to what? So how how do you satisfy that criticism from energy workers? It, hey, it's, it's completely valid. And, you know, fossil fuels are not tobacco. Um, like I say, they underpin our civilization. Um, they provide power for hospitals in Alberta. We need energy, right? But there's a way to do it better. We have to think about two things, I would say, supply chain and jobs and the type of jobs that are available. And the thing about Canadian nuclear energy that makes it so special, particularly in this chaotic world now of geopolitics, is that we control the entire supply chain with nuclear energy, from, from the mines to the fuel fabrication, fabrication to the heavy industry, um, to the operation and, and maintenance of our, of our power plants. Um, that all happens here in Canada. So, you know, the International Monetary Fund confirms this. Nuclear has the highest what's called, um, you know, economic multiplier effect. So because we control the entire supply chain, if we spend a dollar on Kandu nuclear energy, we get a buck 30 back in GDP. And nuclear energy runs off of cheap uranium and high skilled labor. So a lot of, of the expense of nuclear energy is paying people good wages in highly skilled jobs. You know, there's really a job for anybody in nuclear, but, you know, high skilled trades, STEM professionals, PhDs, there's healthcare people involved, everything across the line. So that money goes into their pockets and they spend it in their communities, which is really what we want. And the contrast there is with wind and solar, unfortunately, there's been a real you know, race to the bottom in terms of trying to find places to build the stuff cheaply, um, you know, where there's very poor labor standards, very poor environmental standards, um, you know, actually credible allegations of forced labor where 40% of the world's polysilicon is made, the vital ingredient for solar panels in Western China um, with, the, with the genocide of the Uyghur people in Xinjiang, China. Um, the supply chain for wind and solar is almost exclusively overseas. So when we look at the, the staggering scale of what we need to do to replace fossil fuels, we're looking at, you know, building the equivalent of 113 site C dams 
or 96 large candy reactors. We're, we're not talking just tens of billions. We're talking about hundreds of billions of dollars of expenditures. And we as a society and our government needs to decide, are we going to spend that money here at home and get that you know, ultimate economic stimulus uh, from spending that money within our own supply chain, our own communities, paying our workers great wages to work at great jobs that are mostly unionized? Or do we want to basically have a massive trade deficit and buy solar panels and reduce ourselves to a nation of, of folks that just go around sticking solar panels on frames? There is a sharp contrast in terms of what's available. And that's why I was so um, you know, pleased to be asked to speak at this committee. Um, but I was a little bit disappointed um, that none of the questions that kind of followed up on my presentation, which was very focused on this issue of what, is the, what does the future look like for Canadian workers, none of them actually ended up dealing with, with labor issues. So it was, it was an interesting experience. Well, and I know you had some criticism, and we often hear this uh, about nuclear waste. Um, well, how did you address that? That often comes up when we have the conversation about nuclear waste. I mean, I think it's an issue that that needs to uh, we need to pay attention to. It's it's on a lot of people's minds. Certainly, the environmental movement um, has raised that over and over again as an objection to nuclear uh, energy. There's a couple things that I think are important here. Um, you know, uranium is a very special fuel. It's a million times more uh, energy dense. You get a million times more energy out than you do for the equivalent amount of fossil fuels. So you actually use very little of it. And the waste you generate is quite small in terms of volume, in terms of the amount. So in 70 years in Canada, all of our nuclear waste we've generated would fit in one hockey rink stacked one telephone pole high, about 32 feet high. So to give yourself a, a kind of mental image there. Now, we know how to contain it. There's not been a single issue in terms of a health incident with, with that nuclear waste that we've stored to this date. And what we need is a permanent solution, which is to put it in stable rock formations that are hundreds of millions of years old that we've characterized exquisitely well because of our, of our geologists, right? And we have that kind of rock um, in South Bruce in particular, the rock they're looking at. Um, is excellent at containing it. The, the way that waste would get out and harm people is water would have to get through a ton of different engineered barriers. And I mean, it's really almost over-engineered the way in which they're going to package this waste. But water needs to get through all that, dissolve a ceramic. You know, most people think of nuclear waste, they think of the Simpsons, they think it's like a glowing liquid or something. It's a boring old ceramic pellet the size of a gummy bear, right? That needs to be dissolved. And then water needs to carry that through the rock. Well, this rock only allows water to move a meter in a million years. So after about a centimeter of movement through that rock, the waste is no longer dangerous. And we're obsessing over nuclear waste while completely ignoring the fact that we're pouring carbon into the atmosphere, um, that you know, our, our hydro dams are leaching mercury into the, you know, the waters where they're completely not contained. So we just, you know, we really need to put things in perspective um, and talk to experts, you know, talk to geologists and scientists um, and not, you know, the... Uh, the environmental groups, which are unfortunately, you know, not representing the best science on this, but they, they really have an agenda here. And it's, it's an unfortunate one because, you know, I share um, environmentalist concern. I'm a climate hawk. I care deeply about biodiversity and conservation, but they're very misguided on this issue and, and they need to reevaluate and, and get with the science. Dr. Kiefer, I really appreciate your time tonight. Thanks so much for telling us about the uh, Commons Committee. Okay. Thank you, Angela. It was a pleasure being on. Dr. Christopher Kiefer, he is president of Canadians for Nuclear Energy. I'm Angela Kokot. You're listening to On Point.